Welcome back, everybody. It's day two now of the JPM conference in San Francisco, and I am joined once again by Austin Barrett, head of life sciences at Savills, and our special guest today is Caitlin Tolman. Guys, how are you? We're great. Yeah, very good. Sun's out again. Uh, we keep getting the spurts of rain, but we're all inside. At one point, it was thunder and lightning, so glad to be in here. Now. There was hail better. coming off the side yeah. of the window back there. <laughs> I actually think I saw Linda with a towel, just keeping water in. Yeah. So, um, but we're, we're, we're dry. Maybe we'll take credit for that, bringing it from the East yeah. Coast. You know? There you go. Everyone's moving a little slower today. Yeah. For, for sure. For sure. Well, why don't we start things off a little bit, Caitlin, by telling sure. us just a little bit about yourself and what you do. Yeah, I'm happy to, and thanks for having me. Um, so I started my career, what I like to say is I found myself at the intersection of healthcare economics and innovation. So um, I started out at Silicon Valley Bank. I spent 12 years there, arguably you know, the best place to learn foundation about startup and the innovation economy and venture capital. and. When I joined there, I knew not, nothing about any of those things. Um, and so it, they really just taught me about the industry and how both all of those parts would communicate with each other and build layers of connective tissue for business purposes. So um, I really fell in love with life sciences and healthcare early on. And I've in the better part of my career, have never done anything else. So um, I come at it from a how do you support founders? How do you support investors? And how do you build community for them to speak to each other and meet one another and really build successful businesses. So um, in the 12 years I was at SVB, I had a variety of different roles, um, but really focused on institutional VCs in the ecosystem, figuring out why they were investing in certain spaces, what made them uh, look for certain valuations, for certain exit trends. Um, that is when I learned uh, more about, I would say, market deals and how to understand the sectors that were getting funded um, and how to translate that into different audiences, how to speak to founders about their fundraising path and fundraising strategy and how to work with investors, again, to understand how they were structuring their portfolio and communicating with their limited partners. So um, I had the good fortune of working with John Norris, who I understand was on the podcast yesterday. He's incredibly hard to follow. So had I known that was happening, I probably wouldn't have signed up for this. <laughs> but I worked with him for three years and co-authored uh, the annual trends report that he writes. Um, and again, for me, it was just an, a tremendous education on the ecosystem. And the translation of that was really empowering founders in a time where they had very little access to information um, and in a market you know, that really, uh, at the time, didn't seem so founder friendly. So we were giving them tools and solutions and insights to empower their fundraise. Um, from there, I had a really good opportunity to join Carta, uh, which is uh, a equity platform that focuses on both private and public companies. Everything from foreign INA valuations to building cap tables to looking at equity as a form of compensation. Um, and so for me, it was learning more about equity as a mechanic and why companies and investors exchange that as a value mechanism um, and why founders, when they're uh, bringing on employees or giving equity for, for building companies um, from long-term growth. So I learned as much as I possibly could about equity and helped Carta build a life science and healthcare vertical practice. Uh, so we put together a team of individuals across many different functions, marketing, sales, product, who really learned to speak in life sciences um, and to bring on a new segment uh, of customers ultimately for Carta. So, um, 
through that experience, um, I really found my love for operations. That was really when I became an operator, in my opinion. Um, and there I found an opportunity to bring operations into the venture world, which I've always been really passionate about, um, and met Life Force Capital. Uh, and so I spent about a year and a half um, running venture ops for that team, uh, early stage VC firm focused on investing in computational biology, healthcare delivery, and my role was to care about everything that really built the firm and the infrastructure itself. So our financial operations, the ways in which that we reported and communicated with our LPs, so performance management. Um, I looked after portfolio operations, so what we were doing to track deals, how we were deciding what deals we wanted to invest in, um, and then ultimately deploying that capital. So um, I lovingly would say everything that wasn't writing a check and supporting that check to be written. Um, and it was a tremendous opportunity at a time, arguably, I don't know we'll see again, uh, when there's a tremendous amount of capital in the ecosystem and you know, took a front row seat to learning at that time. So that is a little bit about my path. Fantastic. Yeah. And so is uh, the conference here, the JPM conference, is this a, a regular appearance for you over the years? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, it's, it's, an, it's a time where you can bring in-person meetings together for you know, a variety of different reasons. A lot of times it's because companies are fundraising. Um, and this is the really good opportunity for companies to meet investors who are not, you know, necessarily even just U.S.-based investors. So bringing a lot of global investors. Investors from every different asset class too, which is interesting. So you have a lot of corporate and strategic investors from you know large pharma and payer provider worlds, uh, amongst institutional and financial based investors. So um, if you are a startup in our ecosystem, it is arguably the best time to at least start and having introductory meetings. Um, I think for years we used to think deals would get done on the street. I don't know no. that I've seen that happen for quite some no. time. It's too rainy. Yeah, I think it rains every year. <laughs> Everyone's taking cover. Yeah. I mean, Bob's been lobbying for. For it to be down in San Diego next year. I, I mean, think I think it could be time for a change. Yeah, absolutely. Nice. Bio is there, which was a lovely experience. Well, Bio's in Boston, so. uh, what, June. Um, so mm -hmm. we still be warm. Yeah. So uh, for both of you, how is the conference going? I mean, are you seeing things a little bit different than you saw in the past? Again, it's, it's been a while since we've all really come together in person, and there seems to be a really good, good turnout. What are your thoughts? I... I've loved it. It's been really exciting in terms of just just seeing the faces, having the conversations. I think there's a lot of good news coming out. You know, I was with David Allison this morning from 5 a.m. Mm -hmm. They just sold Syncor to AstraZeneca for a very big return and a two and a half year exit. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, I met with Catherine Vegas Stoltz this morning at you know Oscillate. There, there's just people trying to be more efficient with dollars, right? Um, you know, Kate, you've been on the side of the world seeing where those dollars, watching those cash flows, yeah. how much runway these companies have. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of a you know, chicken and egg right now in terms of there's dollars there, there's companies that are needing dollars, and at what point will they meet in the middle? And um, there's good stuff happening. And so, um, I don't know, I like the energy. The events have been, you know, one after the other. And <clears throat> But I will say that San Francisco feels a little bit quieter. I feel like we could get some fresh energy with another location, at least from my perspective. Yeah. But it's been nice seeing everybody. Yeah, I think it's a tradition that people look forward to. Um, and again, I think it's, you know, it's, it brings different community in life science together. And I think that that's always necessary, particularly 
you know, to your point, Austin, you think about the different perspectives and the different groups that are, are running around here and kind of what the outcomes and motivators will be. Um, for me, I spend a lot of time working with founders and supporting their fundraise strategy. And so I think about this as just a really great place for them to get education on the industry. Um, and it's really fun when you meet a founder who's never done JP Morgan before versus oh, somebody gosh. who's a 12-year veteran. Um, and so, you know, that like fresh excitement feels really palatable right now. Um, and it's, it's just really fun to be around again. Well, it's the mixture of the ideas, right? Mm -hmm. We had uh, the gentleman from Moffitt Cancer Center here mm -hmm. last night. And so, and it's just, you know, we're catching up with folks from Detroit later on this afternoon. There's just pockets of really cool entrepreneurs and ideas and scientific ideas that are getting worked on across everywhere. And it's just, they all come together this week for three days, yeah. um, which is fun. You know, uh, talking about some of these founders and uh, people, companies specifically looking to get some funding while they're here, right, or to make those contacts, what do you recommend to those founders? Yeah, great, great question. Um, and I could talk about this all day because one of the things I'm really passionate about is um, I do a fair bit of fundraising strategy coaching work. So um, I think if the intention is part of your fundraising path, you just, you have to be really intentional about the groups that you want to meet. And you know, in our work together, when I work with founders, we talk a lot about kind of researching and understanding the industry, showing up um, in a way in which you should because you know a group is going to be interested in you. So, I mean, it's about doing your homework. It's about preparing. It's, you know, having a list of investors that you know are well suited for you um, just as much as you are for them and, and diligencing the firm and the partner and, and understanding, you know, as much as you possibly can about their capital flows and their investment interest. Um, you know, it's about uh, really practicing your pitch. That has to be done multiple times in multiple different audiences. Um, and some of that will be with people that you can meet here that become a friendly, that become a part of your community. Might be a potential future advisor. It might be a potential partner. Um, and so practicing the pitch to different audiences is critical. And I think that this JP Morgan gives the opportunity to do that. Um, but you really, you have to research. You have to understand you know, what outcome you want and working with investors. Um, you know, just making sure that you understand who you should be speaking to. Um, and, you know, it's a very, very long engagement, typically, between uh, investors and companies. And so, you know, there is that analogy that floats around very regularly that it's similar to a marriage. And so I always say to founders, be prepared to diligence your investors just as much as they're going to diligence you. You have to know that you want to work with them for the long haul and that they're going to provide the resources that you need as you grow. Um, so doing that before you kind of get prepared and it's part of the fundraising process is critical. Obviously, not a lot of that is going to play out in the conversations <laughs> you have on the streets of San Francisco. <laughs> it's good, JP Morgan. Um, but just knowing that you know this is 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 a launch point to what you're building, and, and often a, a good launch platform for the fundraise process. And we talked a little bit about this yesterday, how the the money's not flowing maybe as quickly as it did in the past. Mm -hmm. So is that another message to founders to be ultra prepared? Sure. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I'd say temper expectations on timeline of fundraise. Um, and part of the research process is also looking not just at comparable deals that might have closed a year ago, um, because again, we're in a very different time, but looking at deals that closed you know, two years ago and even four years ago, uh, because market cycles will be fairly similar in that regard. So the reason that's important is understanding, setting expectations for how long it will take to fundraise, what your evaluation expectations can and should be. Um, again, understanding what different classes of investors have 
have dry powder and, and are sitting on capital to be able to deploy because of their own respective fund cycles. So um, preparing as much as you can and, and learning about those players, um, I think, is critical. Um, but it is about managing the founder's own expectations about what that fundraising process is going to look like. The reality is, um, and I'm speaking mostly about early stage because that's where I spend my time is yeah. really pre-seed through Series A, uh, which is often very critical for founders in, in, this, in forming good habits and good hygiene, I say, good financial hygiene around fundraise. Um, the reality is that you just you, you have to expect for it to be more like a six-month fundraise process, potentially a little bit longer than that, whereas you know a year ago we were seeing deals done in four months and in a completely virtual environment. So I do think expectations are shifting on timelines. Expectations are certainly shifting in valuations and pricing, um, and, and again, how big of a round size it should be. Um, capital preservation is always something that you have to think about regardless of stage and size, but particularly at the early stages. So. Um, researching and being prepared for that in your dialogue um, would be advice I would give to founders right now. Well, and we also talked yesterday about how 21 was such a such a anomaly, really, mm -hmm. kind of a breakout year, mm -hmm. and then 22 is back to reality. Mm -hmm. what, what do you guys think are we is in store for 23 here as, as we get started? I think we s still have some more stormy waters ahead of us. I think at least through the first half of the year. Yeah, I think great. there are uh, a number of companies that are trying to bridge that gap right now, mm -hmm. right? And until we get some sort of visibility on the public market or in the M&A world, right? There are no exits, right? I think people are trying to stall that until they have to raise a Series B or exit the company. And so trying to do more with less. We've mm -hmm. talked a lot about that, Bob, right? Be more efficient, slowing down hiring, being thoughtful about space, right? Mm -hmm. How much, when they take. And so I, I, think, I don't think we're through it yet, but I do think there's uh, a, lot of, a lot of positive energy on the sidelines waiting for it to course correct and move forward. Yeah. Austin, do you, are you, in the people that you talk to, uh, are you hearing a lot of, hey, we, we took too much space or we grew too fast and we need to, we need to correct this as soon as possible? Yeah, I mean, I think there's no doubt folks overcommitted. I mean, we looked at a, a John Norris's data in 2021, right? Your anomaly year, and you looked at what Series A companies were leasing in terms of space in the core markets: Boston, San Francisco, San Diego, and inherently they were taking more space at the time to be proactive, uh, hedging headcount, hedging lab space needs, and you know with the fundraising market where it is, they've had to slow those, you know, hiring processes, the pipeline developments taking longer than expected to get those milestones. And so, you know, folks that were expecting 20, 30% growth were seeing 10 to 15% growth and weren't getting the budgets to grow as fast as they wanted. Uh, and so I think that's certainly impacting markets where, you know, you've got folks that are putting space on the sublease market for the first time. Um, you also have a period of time where you've got a lot of new owners and developers that have converted office buildings and transition product to serve this need. So it's, it's exciting. I mean, for the first time ever, these entrepreneurs and these founders have a chance to be thoughtful around their people and their science and how that actually translates into space. So it's, um, especially in this world where you got to kind of do more with less. So we'll see. Kate, what do you think about going forward here in 23? Yeah, I mean, I agree with a lot of the, the same concepts where I think, 
the life science industry and in, in my perspective there's just there's so much inherent risk right it's we are comfortable with risk on every side of the equation whether you're a founder whether you're an investor whether you're a partner or a service provider there's there's just more risk in our industry than there are others so i want to say that you know that to me is is a steady state always and and you assess your capital needs alongside that risk continuously and so you know, being mindful of, you know, as, as you said, Austin, certainly spend and, and looking, you know, really thoughtfully at your budget and being very calculated about the things you need, I think inherently happens for a lot of life science companies anyways. Um, but understanding that they have to do, there's a longer runway to that capital now. Um, and whereas you were probably picking your head up 18 months in between rounds and, and thinking about fundraising strategy, always, you should always be raising. Um, but thinking about it in that time capsule, you may have to go longer, right? And so thinking about cash burn and, and where you should be spending those dollars is of course critically important. I think, you know, one thing that I am looking forward to kind of tracking and being mindful of in 23 is where are there other pockets of capital that founders can explore to offset that isn't um, dilutive capital, truthfully. So non-dilutive funding can be a really important part of a company's growth. Um, and if there are additional resources available for founders, which I do think we have as an industry become more creative in in the past few years. Um, so seeing more of that become a part of the funding path and realization for founders over the, the year ahead. Um, and then, you know, there's different perspectives around the table. So the perspective for VCs and, you know, thinking about, you know, being in the venture space in 23 is, the interesting part about fundraising is everyone's fundraising from someone, and I love to remind founders of this. It's best to meet VCs when they're in the thick of it on fundraising as well, because they're going to be really, really humble. <laughs> so, and they're oftentimes really great to work with because they empathize and they sit in those shoes of the founder, right? So, um, it's a it's a really good, you know, healthy partnership to have there, um, and and a venture. Venture firms are going through it right now too, and it is tough. Um, and there is, again, there are capital flows that start with limited partners and go all the way down to those companies. So um, I think you know, for venture teams right now, the thing that they're thinking about is very similar to companies. When did we last go out to raise? And is the time period between when we raised our last fund and when we're looking to raise again too short, right? And um, what does that market look like? Are we you know, among other firms that are in the same capacity and coming back out to market when LPs are, you know, sitting back on their heels a little bit and waiting to see how things kind of settle, which is understandable in this market. Um, you know, there's a narrative that the public market tells a lot of that story for both VCs and for companies. Again, in the life sciences space, I think, you know, there's, it's largely cyclical there. Um, but, you know, for for all audiences, it's just being really mindful about extending your runway um, and doing more, doing more with less to the extent that you can, but always having that be a part of you know your operational processes and aware of kind of budgeting and being just very very thoughtful. Um, so, I would encourage founders to lean on VCs for VCs to lean on founders. It's you know when everybody's kind of in a down market, it's those are the type of relationships that last um, and stand the test of time. So it's interesting to see those kind of develop in 23 as well. One of the things that's amazing to me about the conference here is the, the difference in the kinds of companies. Everything mm -hmm. from therapeutics, you mm -hmm. know, all the way to a healthcare data type of a, a group. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that you guys have your eyes on for 23 that is kind of raising eyebrows? Yeah, for sure, for me. 
Yeah. Okay. <laughs> 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 One of my iron here, Austin. Um, I'm really passionate about computational biology um, and tech bio companies. So you know, there's different terms thrown around every few years. Um, but you know, for tech bio companies, the way that they typically define themselves is they are building, potentially discovering and building therapeutics. But they are the way in which they're doing this is by building a platform, uh, and that compounding platform will. You know, hopefully disrupt part of that drug discovery process um, and, and really make it more efficient over time. And so those companies are exciting to me because, again, we can potentially create more efficient models um, in the way in which you create and develop a therapeutic, the time to get to the clinic, for example, which we know is incredibly costly for companies. Um, and so I think that there's you know tremendous opportunity for tech bio companies right now. Um, and it's this really interesting convergence of talent and people because you're taking you know computational background and putting that along somebody you know with a biology background. Um, and so I think you know it's a it's it's a really interesting platform to be building and, and team to bring together. Um, and the cost structures are different than building a therapeutic. And so oftentimes, you know, the, the price points and valuations are, are looked at differently. Um, so I've always been pretty bullish and passionate. I think it's a really interesting time for those companies always. At some point in time, you know, everything, there's a lot of a lot of talk about this and a belief around every therapeutic company will need a platform one day. It's at what point in time you're starting it, right? Um, and I would say on the healthcare side, I think that we're still in a little bit of a, you know, coming out of the pandemic and um, post-COVID environment, um, looking at unbundling of the hospital. So we saw a tremendous insurgent influx of needs that ultimately had to be taken away from what, where we would have probably been very comfortable going receiving our care, right, um, in a hospital environment or a primary care facility environment. And so looking at companies that are optimizing, um, I would say, you know, cash flows and pricing around that in a certain way, um, but then really about um, access and affordability as well. And so things across the spectrum from behavioral health um, to aging in place and, again, moving those services where they can be inside the home and, and ideally outside of a hospital or clinical setting. So I'm pretty excited about companies in those spaces. What are you excited about, Austin? Um. Well, those are awesome areas. Um, I'm pretty excited about the continued growth of the cell and gene therapy world. I think there's ways to do it in more capital efficient manners, right? And I think we've heard some of the horror stories where folks have overcommitted and spent mil multiple millions of dollars to build some of these plants. And, you know, somebody holds the keys at some point. So how do, how do we go build a model or early stage companies have access to those types of spaces to test and build? How do they get into those types of facilities in a cost-effective way? And how do we find other owners and institutional investors to share in that risk, right? You've got, you know, I'm just excited to see what happens with Resilience, the folks at Gene Suites, like these other organizations that are saying, hey, like Alexandria, like who's taking on the risk of the R&D growth in some of these markets, these folks want to go in and take on the risk of like growing the commercial line you know, capacity here in North America. And so like, you've got a lot of people that are sitting around with a lot of dollars to go make that happen. And so I, I don't know, I'm excited to see that hopefully come to come together over the next 12, 24 months. Well, great. Well, this has been a great conversation, guys. I really appreciate it. And um, we'll, do, we'll just move on now to, to day three. So thanks, thanks so much. Yeah. Stay thanks, dry Kate. out there. Yeah, appreciate it. Appreciate it. Guys. it.